0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. I hope you all have had a good holy week. It has been a wonderful week of worship, but I am grateful that it is over and we're starting the new week, the new week of new life in Christ. So what a joy to be able to be together, to join our voices, to listen to God's word as a family um, and continue to celebrate the good news of Jesus' victory over death. If we haven't met yet, my name's C.T. Eldridge, one of the pastors here, and I look forward to continuing to worship God together as we open the Scriptures. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49 is where we'll be this morning. But before we get there, I want to share with you a gift we have. Um, For each of you on the way out this morning, there's a chance to grab this book. It's called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. It's written by a man named Val Grieve, who was a prominent attorney in England, and also a faithful follower of Jesus. And he wrote this book with you, the reader, in mind as the jury, and he, the practicing attorney, advocating for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. So it's a really powerful book. It's been printed and reprinted for decades, and we'd love for you to have one of them. This book didn't cost us a whole lot of money. Publishers cut a deal for us this time of year, so don't feel bad. Take one, take however many you think you could give away. We'd love for you to have one, but this book relates to uh, what Jesus is going to talk about in our text today. So we wanted to offer this to you as a gift. Um, But again, we're in Luke chapter 24 for the sermon this morning. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we've been in Luke's gospel for some time now, and we've made our way through it looking at the different mealtime settings that Jesus ministered in. Um, We've talked about before that very often Jesus tells stories of Jesus' life and tells stories of Jesus' ministry as they took place around meals. And that culminated uh, Good Friday when we looked at the Last Supper, uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed and ultimately resurrected. But it didn't stop with Jesus' initial life. Jesus' eating habits continued after he rose from the grave, Um, You may remember in Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who Jesus appears to, uh, risen from the grave. Well, that travel ends with them sharing a meal together in Luke 24. But then Jesus appears to his 12 disciples, and he's going to share a snack with them. So Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49 is where we are. And this is another one of the appearances Jesus makes after he rises from the grave, again, this time with the 12 disciples. So I'll read these verses for us. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But the disciples were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while the disciples still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? The disciples gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where will we find peace in life? Despite technological developments that our ancestors could only dream of, we haven't developed a sure path to peace. Despite medical advances that have conquered numerous once deadly diseases, we have not cured hopelessness. And despite financial prosperity that's almost shameful how much we have, very often we still don't have peace, deep, lasting peace. If you look at 10, 20-year trajectories, suicide rates are increasing, depression and anxiety rates are increasing, stress-induced diseases are increasing. And though there's many factors that go into each one of these different experiences, one important factor is a lack of peace. We live in the most prosperous country ever, in the most prosperous time in history ever, and yet we still lack peace as much as ever. Where will we find peace in life? Well, friends, the good news held out to us in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, is that the truth of Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of lasting peace. When we put our trust in the risen Christ, we receive a kind of peace that the worst circumstances can't take from us. Through his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. He conquered sin and Satan so that whatever hellish experiences we go through in this life, we can have a confident, peace-creating certainty that Jesus is victor. Jesus wins. But think back to the disciples' experience during the final week of Jesus' life. It was an incredibly stressful week for them. It was an emotional nosedive, really. Because over the course of that week, piece by piece, all their hopes that they had pinned on Jesus crumbled. Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested, condemned, crucified, then buried. And so their hope, their sense of peace, is gone. In Luke chapter 22, the disciple Peter is angrily frustrated when Jesus is arrested. In Luke chapter 23, the women disciples are deeply sad watching Jesus hang from the cross. Then in Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they say that they've lost hope now that Jesus is dead. So in all these reports there's a deep sense of defeat. There's a painful lack of peace, of assurance. That everything's going to be okay. They don't have that on Good Friday. They don't have that on Saturday. And they don't have that early Sunday morning, now that Jesus is dead and gone. Then in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, the disciples are huddled together, talking about everything that's happened. And then suddenly, Jesus appears. And this is the first thing he says to his troubled disciples. Peace to you. That's the first thing the risen Jesus says to his disciples. Peace to you. Now you may think, oh, well, this is just a simple greeting. We shouldn't look into this too hard. Jesus would have said this kind of thing all the time. But I don't think so. Because the theme of peace is one of profound significance in the whole Bible, but also within the Gospel of Luke itself. So you think back to Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah worships the newborn Christ. In those words of praise, Zechariah stated about Jesus that he had been born to give light to those who sit in darkness and sit in the shadow of death and to guide our feet on the path of peace. And then in Luke chapter 2, there's that famous scene in the fields with the shepherds. The heavens open up before them. They hear the angels singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. So when Jesus shows up and says to his defeated, hopeless disciples, peace to you, this isn't a throwaway line. Jesus is saying that what Zechariah said and what the angels sang about is coming true. God is guiding us into peace. And there is a chance for peace on earth because Jesus is alive. The truth of his resurrection is the foundation of lasting peace. Jesus wants his disciples to receive his peace. He wants you to receive this peace. However, Luke tells us the disciples don't immediately receive his peace. Instead, verse 37 says that the disciples were startled and they were frightened when they saw Jesus and heard him speak. And in verse 38, Jesus can perceive that there's doubts in their hearts, so they don't have that confident, assured peace yet. Why not? Well, as Luke said there, they think... They're seeing a spirit. They think they're seeing a ghost. They don't believe in the truth of Jesus' resurrection yet, that he really rose from the grave. In the same way that we often doubt, in the same way that we often struggle to believe, so the disciples did then too. So what Jesus is going to do over the next several verses is is give three reasons that we can be confident He has risen. Because if we're confident that he rose from the grave, then we can have lasting peace. So how do we know the resurrection really happened? Jesus gives us three reasons. First, Jesus' resurrection is physically confirmed. His resurrection is physically confirmed. Look again at verse 39. Jesus can tell that doubts have arisen in their hearts, that they think they're seeing a ghost so he says in verse 39 see my hands see my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have and when Jesus said them said this he showed them his hands and his feet so it seems like Jesus is especially showing them his hands and feet because that's where his crucifixion marks would have been so he's saying it's me it's jesus the same jesus you saw crucified dead and buried here i am again alive resurrected because touch confirms presence right Have you ever got stuck in a darkened room for whatever reason the power goes out or Someone turns the lights out on you. What do you do? Well, you start to reach out in front of you and around you, kind of awkwardly walking, searching with your feet to try to touch something in order to verify where you are. As we say, to feel your way around, because touch confirms presence. Well, in the same way, Jesus says, look and touch. It's me. I'm here with you alive. Then in verse 41, Jesus is going to take it a step further. <clears throat> Luke writes, "While the disciples still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, 'Have you anything to eat?' Then the disciples gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took the fish and ate it before them." So this is another proof of Jesus' physicality. They see him, they touch him, and he eats. Because if he were a mere spirit, if he were some bodiless phantom, then he couldn't eat. The material food would pass right through his immaterial form. But in their presence, before their eyes, he has a filet fish Down it goes. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of lasting peace. And the resurrection is physically confirmed. Very often, Christianity and all religions, really, very often, they are portrayed as mere wishful thinking. Very often, Christianity is portrayed as irrational, pie in the sky, think happy thoughts, just a bunch of made-up stuff so that we can feel better about ourselves and feel better about life. But that is entirely contrary to the biblical account Luke is writing here about tangible, physical, empirical evidence from eyewitness accounts. This happened in space and time. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose, he was seen and heard and touched. This is not a fairy tale. And if this is really real, then it changes everything. It means Jesus is worthy of our full allegiance. It means Jesus is able to fill the hole in your soul and give you the kind of peace that you were created to experience. Jesus' resurrection is physically confirmed. Jesus shares another reason, though, we can be assured of his resurrection. It is prophetically forecasted. Jesus' resurrection is prophetically forecasted. So after he eats his mickfilet, Jesus continues to share with his disciples. Verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and prophets and psalms must be fulfilled. So again, the context of Jesus saying this is that the disciples are bewildered. The disciples are stunned. Jesus is alive again? Really? This is incredible, right? Like, literally not credible, right? Jesus says, well, not really. This is all what had to happen. The law and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. This was God's plan from the beginning, and his plan was recorded in Scripture, and his plan was fulfilled in my life, death, and resurrection that's what he says next in verses 45 through 46. Luke says Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures that is the old testament scriptures. Jesus said thus it has been written it has been planned from long ago that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. Jesus says my life and death and resurrection didn't just come out of nowhere. My work of salvation has been a plan set in motion from years, decades, centuries ago. Moses wrote about me, he says. The prophets spoke of me. The psalmist from ages past testify about me. So what he's saying is you can have confidence. You can have assurance that he is truly resurrected because his resurrection is prophetically forecasted. Very often when I'm driving my family around, especially on vacation when we're in a new place and I don't really know where I am and how to get around, very often I will get lost. I will miss a turn or take the wrong exit, and especially when we've got a flight to catch to get back home, it can be pretty tense and emotions can start to rise in our car. And so in order to calm everybody down, I will say something like, guys, it's okay, chill out. It's all a part of my plan. And what I'm doing when I say that is I'm lying, right? I'm I'm totally lying. But what I'm trying to do is assure my family. I'm trying to give them peace of mind that even though it seems like we're lost, I have a plan. Things are not out of my control. I am not caught off guard. And that, in a sense, is what Jesus is doing here he's saying everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the writings, it had to be fulfilled. My death and my resurrection are fulfillment of the ancient scriptures. Things may seem like they're out of control. Things may seem scary, but God has a plan and it is being fulfilled. You can trust that his resurrection is true because it is prophetically forecasted. Now, obviously, we don't have time to walk through the entire Old Testament and see how it points to Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection. But I can tell you that starting next week, Lord willing, we will begin a sermon series on Isaiah chapter 6. And we will see at least how that chapter from the prophets points to Christ. And at the end of May, all the way through June, we're going to do a study on the book of Genesis, that book from the law of Moses. And we will see the many ways in which that book points to Christ. So we'd love to have you back. We're here every Sunday morning, 9.30 and 11 a.m., in order to study the law and prophets and how Jesus fulfills them. But Jesus' point here in this passage is that his resurrection is true because it is prophetically forecasted. The disciples didn't just dream this up. They didn't just think, oh, hey, this is a great story that would make people follow our new religion. No, God's plan was divinely revealed to dozens of different authors across the centuries as the Old Testament was written. And all of these writings culminate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This isn't some fabricated, superstitious nonsense. This is truth revealed. Promises made, promises fulfilled that you can verify as you study the Old Testament and see how Christ fulfills it. His resurrection is physically confirmed. It is prophetically forecasted. And finally, his resurrection is powerfully proclaimed. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of lasting peace. And we can know it's true because it has been powerfully Proclaimed. Look finally at verses 47 through 49. Jesus has said that the law and prophets had to be fulfilled through his death, through his resurrection, and in the proclamation that was to follow. He says it must be that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You all are my witnesses of These things. So, this is a third reason why we can trust his resurrection really happened because it has been powerfully, unstoppably proclaimed. So, the book of Acts is the New Testament record of the first several decades of the church's life after Christ. And that record shows how the good news of Jesus is unleashed. Starting in Jerusalem, but eventually crossing cultural barrier after cultural barrier until the gospel gets at least as far as Rome by Acts chapter 28. This despite all sorts of persecution and hostility. Jesus said it must be in fulfillment of God's plan that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all nations. And it's happened. Friends, we are nearly 6,000 miles away from the city of Jerusalem in modern-day Israel. I googled it yesterday. And the good news of Jesus' resurrection throughout the centuries has overcome obstacle after obstacle. Despite the many enemies of the gospel, despite how much the church has often blown it, nothing could stop the good news of Jesus. As Jesus says here, it must be proclaimed to all nations. You think back to this original group ragtag, uneducated, unimpressive disciples 2,000 years ago, 6,000 miles away in the middle of the Middle East and yet here we are in Lapeer hearing that same gospel. It's because the gospel is true. His resurrection really happened. The question is, have we really believed it? You know, it's important the way Jesus puts it here. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed. Repentance, not just some shallow acknowledgement that yeah, I believe in God, yeah, I believe in Jesus. No, Jesus says that repentance must be proclaimed. And repentance is not just believing certain truths about God and Jesus. Repentance is a 180 degree turn in your life. It is a radical shift whereby you turn from sin and living for yourself and instead center your life around Jesus. Jesus says when that change happens in your life, then you will be forgiven forever. That message, even though it is a challenging message, That message has made it all the way to Southeast Michigan because it is a true message. It is the power of God. And so I urge you, friend, repent from your sin. Turn from your life of living for yourself and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Make Him the center of your life. Receive His forgiveness, receive His peace. When I was 20 years old, before I became a Christian, one of my Christian friends, he could tell that I was struggling. He could tell I was struggling in life and struggling with God. And he said, CT, you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart. You've got a God-shaped hole in your heart, and you're trying to fill that hole with Success playing football, you're trying to fill that hole with partying and drinking, you're trying to fill that hole with being popular and people liking you, you're trying to fill it with education and making money, but CT, it is a God shaped hole and it can only be filled by God. And until then, the peace you lack is going to stay that way. And friend, I say the same thing to you. We were made to know our Creator, to live in a trusting, worshipful relationship with Him. But because of our sin, we are broken. The world is broken and our relationship with God is broken. So this is the good news. Jesus came and He lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived a perfect life of love towards other people and a perfect life of obedience towards God. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, and then Jesus died the death that you and I deserved, taking upon himself the judgment of God for our sin. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died, and then he rose from the grave so that all who turn from their sin and humbly put their trust in him will be forgiven forever and will receive a peace that cannot be shaken. Believe this good news. Trust in Jesus and receive his peace. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning that out of the silence, out of the stillness of the tomb, we hear the good news that Jesus is alive. Father, we thank you for the joy of the gospel, for the peace of Christ, that fills our hearts with a certainty, with an assurance that Jesus wins, that he reigns. And yet, Father, it is still true that like the disciples, we can struggle, we can disbelieve, we can doubt. And so I pray, Father, for many of us who may have been attending Easter services for decades, I pray, Father, that the power from on high that Jesus spoke of here, the promise of the Father that is the Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that your Spirit would speak this morning in a powerful way to the depths of our hearts, the truth of the resurrection, and the power of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, Lord of my life, and Lord even over death. God, be glorified as we continue to celebrate this gospel, to praise you in the highest for this work of salvation, for your unstoppable purpose fulfilled in Jesus, and now landing here in Lapeer in each one of our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.